Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to PillowCube.com and getting one for yourself. In the financial services industry, you better have an ability to hold digital currency. And there are things like, I guess, dirty wallets and clean wallets. There are offshore money, like offshore money and onshore money. And very quickly now, digital assets are falling under a regulatory environment. I guess it's kind of like if you can't beat them, join them. And so clean wallets are... Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Dr. Lisette Cooper. Lisette, thanks for doing this. I'm really glad to be here, Jess. Wonderful to be with you. So I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit already. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. You have a very accomplished background. Can you can you give people a little bit of a little bit of your story of Harvard and growing such a great company and selling it to Franklin Templeton and shareholder activism and, and give people kind of the quick overview and then I want to go in depth on a bunch of these. Uh, okay, I could do that. Let's see. I, I got a PhD in geology from Harvard University, and then I went to Wall Street, a career on Wall Street. And I guess the transition, they were looking for rocket scientists, but I misheard. I thought they were looking for rock scientists. So, <laughs> But it seemed to work anyway. And I went to work in capital markets for Merrill Lynch on the West Coast, kind of doing quant things. It was the math that was the real transition, like the, the, the stuff I did in my dissertation that I thought was the heat flow equation was what Wall Street, they used to price options. So that was really the transition. But all of that high finance and everything was really only like 20% of what you needed to know really people skills were 80% of the job. So I sat and learned and listened from all of these, you know, fantastic salespeople and business people all around me. And from there, I went to run the consulting group at a risk management firm and really learned how to manage money, run investment strategies, and 
started Athena Capital Advisors initially as a almost like a joint venture, but like a revenue share with that risk management firm running strategies for institutional investors. Those were the early days. And was that as, like 93 when you started that? Yeah, yeah, that was really a long time ago, 93. And after a few years, I learned about something called a multifamily office. And these were really, really high net worth families who kind of managed their money in an institutional style. And I thought that would be a great idea. I could take all these skills that I'd learned running institutional money and apply it to families. And that would be a lot more fun. So I went to uh, a friend that I knew and we owned, we owned a couple airplanes together. And I asked him what he thought of that idea. And he said, that would be great, Lizette, and I'll be your first client. So that was in the early 2000s. And we kind of went from there. I knew a lot of professional investors. So the core of our client base were professional investors. And we kind of became the investor's investor and, you know, kind of grew from 1 billion of assets to two to three and so on and so forth. And just last year, having built this multifamily office to a point where, I don't know, you know, it was time for it to be passed on. And, you know, for my employees and the families and have a long-term home for multi-generations. So I looked around for a place to sell my firm that would be around for for the long term. Um, well, I think that you know, last last numbers I saw from October 2020, you know, Franklin Templeton had about 1.4 trillion under management. So it seems like that's it seems like you made a solid choice there. Yeah, I I, I really love the the firm. Fiduciary Trust is a subsidiary of Franklin Templeton, and they've been managing money for families for 90 years. They're one of the original trust companies. So I thought, okay, they're gonna be around for the long term. And it was a strategic acquisition for them. They didn't have so much of this multifamily office kind of money run the way we ran it, and especially impact investing that we've been doing for about 20 years. And I just loved that the parent company, Franklin Templeton, even though it is a publicly traded company, that 40% of it was controlled or owned by one family, the Johnson family. And so they don't really have the short-termism of most public companies. And besides that, the CEO of Franklin Templeton was a woman, Jenny Johnson. So I, I, I really like that too. So it's a great home for us. Oh, that's so exciting. And, you know, we got introduced through General Votel, who's, who's been one of my favorite guests that we had on the show. And he, he spoke so highly of you. I was really excited uh, when we got to meet. How long have you been involved with the Ben's organization? Yeah, I, I think I got involved with Ben's in 2016. And actually, I had no idea when I joined Franklin and Fiduciary Trust that Larry Huntington, who's one of the former CEOs of Fiduciary Trust, was one of the original Ben's members and on the and on the board, which is amazing because there's only like 400 Ben's members in total, you know, and, and with some pretty cool members like Jeff Bezos and, and so on. But but anyway, I I, I learned about it from one of my clients who was a member of Ben's when they first looked into having a Boston office. And my client who's in the investment business wanted to know if I'd like to go with him on a recruiting trip and invited me to, to fly out to uh, Washington State to Microsoft headquarters to learn about cybersecurity. So I thought that would be pretty cool. So there are a bunch of executives from the 
financial industry all over Wall Street met up at Microsoft headquarters in this you know cyber defense operations center and we heard about you know botnets and what really happens inside of companies and I came back from that and First of all, we changed our software that we use to, you know, for our virus protection. I decided, oh my God, we really do need to go to the cloud because I realized for the first time how it really works when criminals get inside your network, you know, and what's the difference between a state actor and a non-state actor and all of this. So I learned so much to help our company protect our clients. And also got a tremendous appreciation for Ben's. So, of course, joined Ben's. So, you know, the name Business Executives for Net- for National Security partially explains it. But for people not familiar with Ben's, how, how do you communicate what their mission is? Yeah, it was formed originally to bring business risk management practices to help our national defense to really bring those practices to national security. And the way I think about it is it's a two-way street because it really helps us as business executives understand what we need to do for our businesses to protect ourselves and what's really going on in the interests of national security. And for me, I've also developed a tremendous appreciation of our men and women in the armed forces and what they do for our country. So it's a two-way street. We really help each other. Yeah, it's so great. For people who are interested in it, what what does the application process look like? Or what what kind of executives are, are they that typically join Ben's? Well, you know, first of all, one thing people should know is that it is fiercely nonpartisan and independent. So it, it has completely stays out of politics and also tremendously strong ethic against business development and very much of a do action oriented kind of organization. You know, there are a lot of CEOs, you know, you know, prominent members might be like Bernie Marcus, who founded Home Depot or Fred Smith from from FedEx or But, you know, I was a CEO when I joined, but that's not necessary, but a lot of C-suite executives. And it's great if you do have resources that you have at your fingertips that you can contribute to help with efforts. But, you know, really, I think that strong interest in, in national security and in, you know, being a helpful partner. But I don't know. I just think it is, it was tremendously fun. Everybody does different things. Some people like to help with projects. I really love the uh, the trips and the travel. It's it's such a great mission and it's fun to see, you know, people from industry, you know, helping out too. You know, you think these these folks in the armed forces and the intelligence community that that give up so much to to ensure our way of life. It's it's great to see anyways that the rest of us can be helpful to them and and try to make their job a little easier in some way, right? Yeah. I don't think I really answered your question about what the application process is. And I'm not sure I really know that exactly, except to get to know someone in your community who is a member. There are seven regions, Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Dallas, San Francisco, and Chicago. So certainly if someone who's listening to this podcast is interested, you're welcome to reach out to me and I can put you in touch with someone in your region. That's great. Well, I want to talk about a number of these things, but but I feel like I want to talk about 
one of the things that you and I share in common, which is a passion for protecting kids from exploitation and, and, you know, going after folks creating child sexual abuse, sexual abuse imagery and countering child trafficking. Can you talk about, you know, the thing that I was just so impressed when we first started talking about how you've been able to use money to help influence some of the largest corporations in this country start to, to protect kids better? Oh, thanks for asking about that. Yeah, we had a great conversation about that. And, you know, one of the things that we we do in my firm, you know, people want to align their wealth with their values. And so we, you know, we help them do that. You know, you can use philanthropy or you can do something that's called sustainable investing or impact investing. And one of the toolkits in impact investing is shareholder engagement. So we had some women who were super interested in uh, using their wealth to help other women. And I think they got especially riled up around the 2016 election and around the time of uh, the Me Too movement and just wanted to figure out, you know, I've been doing this gender lens investing and, you know, I'm helping other women investment managers. I want to do more. So we embarked on a a process of really filing resolutions and shareholder engagement in two big areas. One was around women in the workplace, things like gender pay, and the other was dealing with sexual violence and violence against women and children. And what we landed on was working with companies to protect against online child sexual exploitation. And the very first uh, company we worked with was Verizon. A lot of us were in New England and you know, we'd get together in different people's living rooms and talk about you know, what companies did we want to target? How did we want to go after this? And it doesn't take very much stock. You know, at the time, only $2,000 worth of stock. Now it takes $25,000 if you've held it just for one year or $2,000 for three years. But we, we hired a consultant to help us. And with Verizon, we wrote a shareholder resolution lambasting them for some practices they'd had on their businesses. And we got 35% vote. And the next year, they hired a head of child safety. They divested themselves of some businesses that had some real problems. And they've been a great partner. And we've worked with management behind the scenes to you know, do some terrific things to help children. But the next year we went after Facebook and I was the lead filer in an engagement with Facebook. And that's gotten a tremendous amount of publicity. So you want me to go into the Facebook engagement a little more? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so with a, a little bit of this under our belt, rather than the first year I was a co-filer with Verizon, Facebook is, is actually what, one of the really, is really a serious player, really serious problem in child sexual exploitation material online. In 2019, there were 16 million reports from Facebook and its platforms to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children of instances of child sexual abuse material. And that increased by about 30% in 2020. So there's so much there on its different platforms. And so since they're the 
sort of the most visible biggest player and they were looking to go to end it to end encryption on all of their platforms and they've admitted recently that if they go to end to end encryption it's going to make it impossible to track these CSAM cases you know harder to identify the victims and abusers. They were interviewed at the in a hearing at the British House of Commons and said that if content's being shared and they don't have access to the content, then they can't report on it. So we were super concerned that if they went to end-to-end encryption, that all of these reports that can get submitted to law enforcement and that could help kids who are being abused, you know, to track down the predators and actually potentially save kids who are in the process of being abused, you know, we were seriously concerned about that. So we asked for a report on what would happen if they went to end-to-end encryption. And we, you know, if I was to jump to the the, the chase and I'll, I'll, I'll come back around, we got what's a huge vote for a first year resolution in terms of the non-management shareholders. We got a 43% vote. Zuckerberg and his colleagues control most of the vote. So that's only 12.4% of the company, but it got a lot of attention. And one of the reasons it got a lot of attention was because as we're getting ready to have a press conference on this topic, I went to talk to my daughter and Sarah had done a senior thesis about online child exploitation. She was a senior in college. And so I knew she was interested in the topic. And I said, Sarah, you know, do you have anything that you would like to contribute to our press conference? And she knew we'd been interested in this, working on the topic with these other women investors for about two years. And I thought maybe she'd have you know, texted picture of herself or something. And after thinking about it overnight, she said, yes, mom, actually I do. And she proceeded to tell me a story about something that had happened to her when she was a teenager and in particular when she was 18. And I had heard about that something bad had happened to her in New York when she was 18 and she'd graduated from high school and moved out to an apartment. I knew, you know, that bad thing had happened in New York, that she might have died. But that's pretty much what I knew. And what I didn't know was that she'd been groomed on Facebook by a sexual predator for over two years. And that that summer when she turned 18, those three weeks that I didn't hear from her and I just got a phone call saying, I miss my mom, that during those three weeks when she was out of touch with me, that she had been kidnapped by this person that she'd met online on Facebook and taken across state lines and sold into sexual slavery, that she was, you know, sold into prostitution and held captive against her will. And she did manage to escape by calling someone she knew she was able to do that, but I had no idea. And she said she didn't want to tell me because they said that they would kill her, they would kill me if if she would ever escaped. And so, and she's ashamed, you know, and this kind of thing happens, but it's like, well, honey, are you sure that you want to tell your story? And she said, I'm sure I want to tell my story. I want to take my power back. I, I don't want to hide my face. I, I want to do this so that this, nothing like this ever happens again to anyone else. So we went public 
with this. And, you know, it hit 65 different publications on four continents in multiple languages. And it was really, you know, quite a memorable shareholder engagement. Let's say that. You know, thank you for sharing that story. It's, I know it's personal. I think about it, it, it's such a complex issue. You know, my my wife's mother, we've, we've talked a lot about our charity child rescue on the show over the years. And it, it was in some ways, there were some similarities to the experience we had. You know, she she knew that there had been a lot of abuse in her family line and that her mom had been abused as a little girl. But it wasn't until we had started the charity and she was Glamour magazine wanted to do an article on on her and her mom that her mom like they were flying out from New York and her mom talked to me and said hey I've actually got some more to share I haven't you know shared with the kids over the last 35 years like I I actually got forced into this for money as a teenager and it wasn't just abuse as a kid and she 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 wanted me to be the one to share it with my wife because of exactly what you said the shame she you know her she just talks about how she didn't want her kids to think less of her, you know, and it's, it's so twisted when they, you know, when they've been given these messages of that somehow it was their fault or there was involvement or, or these things and, and they don't always get seen internally, you know, they don't always see themselves as the victim as much and their stigma and it's, you know, the longer that we work on the issue, the more complexities I find out about it. And yet, you know, she was the one who broke the cycle. So it didn't happen to my wife. And, you know, it'd been going on for almost a hundred years over four generations. You know, I'm the first, I'm the first dad in that family line to stick around in a hundred years. And she's so brave. And, you know, you look at my kids, her, her grandkids have such an exceedingly different lifestyle than her mom and her grandma and her great grandma, you know? Yeah, it's just incredible. And and how amazing to break that cycle. And it does take so much bravery and courage. And it's so difficult. I think people don't understand kind of the mindset and the the kind of brainwashing that goes into it when people are groomed and brought into the situation. So I think it's very important to begin to talk about the subject and to begin to honor the survivors. I think that child sexual abuse in many ways is much more widespread in our society than we we would like to believe. And just as the Me Too movement that women started to come out of the corners about what had happened to them, that hopefully this will become a little more normalized so that survivors can feel better about themselves and regain, if not their childhood, at least regain their adulthood and be able to feel feel better about themselves and who they are and go on with, with their adult lives and their children to live a normal life. Yeah, you know, we, we spent so much time in the last 10 years, uh, especially around law enforcement assistance, whether it's police trainings or or helping pay f- to either other groups or or send some of our guys to assist law enforcement in under- undercover rescue missions and stuff. And, you know, we've had situations where, you know, members of our team are going to work with, with another group that's spearheaded an operation with the local law enforcement and the traffickers were offering them the kids right over Facebook. Do you want these kids? Do you want these kids to rent, you know? And I know in our society, we talk a lot about privacy and I, you know, I'm not really in favor of having 
the government read every one of my emails, but there is this balance too of like, there, there's a balance out there between privacy and protecting the most vulnerability, vulnerable people in our society, these children, right? Exactly. I, I think there's really a balance between safety and privacy. And I, I really look to Facebook to come up with a solution where they can have something that is quite private and does allow for something very close to end-to-end encryption, but also allows for somebody besides hackers, you know, when there's, there's a need for ordinary law enforcement to be able to provide for safety of the most vulnerable in society, that we can do that, that we can protect our children. Yeah. You know, something that is really optimistic to me about this is, you know, with with ESG goals and, and companies being so much more interested in their effect on society instead of just profits. I, I think there are a lot of folks in the tech world who who are considering more than making money and how can they be do things that are positive. And then with investors like yourselves who are going to put your money where your mouth is and jump through the hoops to to file the necessary things and to get the media involved and bring attention to the ways that the, these businesses that have helped our society in so many ways and expanded. And, you know, there's farmers in Africa who can now get a better price for their crops off their smartphone. And, you know, there's so many benefits, but there's also some responsibilities that, that come along with it of, you know, of helping relieve unnecessary suffering, right? Exactly. And there, well, there are resources like, you know, missingkids.org, you know, that's put out by the Center for um, Missing and Exploited Children by NICMIC. And there's a lot of things that, you know, parents can go on and educators can go on and, and, and look at. And my daughter, Sarah, has joined the Survivors Council now at ECPAT USA. So, you know, there are a, a lot of good resources around this particular issue. And of course, your, your own Child Rescue Association. That's so great. You know, I look at, you know, we've got such good friends at NYPD and LAPD and other organizations that tell me a lot of the stories of of the cases that they're making off of some of these platforms. And just doing the right thing isn't always enough pressure. So I think folks like yourself and, and those that you work with to help add a little bit of extra friction for folks, you know, keeping the status quo and instead getting more responsible is it's, it's really an optimistic thing for our country that the actions you guys have taken already have had the effects they've had and that would reasonably have more effects in the future. Thanks, Jess. You too. Uh, well, you've got so many interesting parts of your background. I feel like we need to do a mini series together so I can do like a whole hour on each one of these, but kind of a tangent if we're going to switch, switch directions for a minute. Uh, I'd love to hear about your time at the Harvard Innovation Lab. What did you do there? Oh, that was so fun. You know, as an like expert in residence, basically it's giving advice to student-led entrepreneurs. And, you know, they come by at, with their business plans and you, you're kind of like the business plan doctor or the company doctor and help them figure out what's missing, what do they need more of, what could they do better, and everybody has a different situation. So it was a ton of fun. I've also been involved in judging different competitions for prizes and things like that. So yeah, it was just, it's just a lot of fun helping young entrepreneurs get going. And I think in many cases, they're not necessarily going to be the greatest success with their first company, but they're like entrepreneurs with training wheels. And then every so often, you know, there is a great home run that'll come out of the innovation lab. Yeah. 
Well, I'm interested in any lessons either from there or otherwise. You know, you look at this idea of being a vice chairman at a $77 billion fiduciary trust. How do you guys, how do you guys bring innovation into you know, an industry that it's it's obviously has a priority on stability and predictability, but there's also fintech and things that are changing at all times. And how do you think about that? Okay, now there's a lot of juicy stuff in there. So <laughs> I'm going to go in two different directions. So okay. first thing is we have to keep innovating. So really strong corporate culture, uh, great culture with diversity and inclusion. And so that means taking ideas from different sectors and being able to fold them in. And so along those lines, we're in the process of becoming digital custodian. So that's very important for the next generation and for the future. We've just got to be able to do that. That's blockchain is so important for moving forward. So that's one direction. And the other thing, you know, not only am I vice chair for fiduciary trust, but I'm on the management committee at Franklin. So innovating there, I've Mm, helped with the first ever CSR report, corporate social responsibility report we just released in April. And we set some goals up for ourselves in different areas for the environment, for ESG, for diversity and inclusion. And one of the things that we set as a goal, and we have just established a stewardship and sustainability council. So all of this work that I'm doing on shareholder engagement, you know, we're now have investment professionals across the 19 SIMs, specialty investment managers of the firm as a whole, so that, you know, we can talk about stewardship and sustainability across that what's now just about 1.5 trillion dollars which is really exciting and bring best practices yeah no kidding well let's dive into a couple of those for for people who maybe don't understand as much why your comment about how critical uh, blockchain could be to the future here can you explain more about that for people not as familiar okay so I'm not sure if I can, but I'll try. I think that blockchain is going to be a fantastic disintermediary, disintermediary in the financial services system in the middle and back office because it provides a way of keeping track of transactions with as a distributed ledger system so that you know what the what a price was or exactly what happened not through one particular source of record the way we have right now with traditional custodians and books and records but through a whole different system so anyone who wants to be a player in financial services in the future really needs to get on board and understand blockchain so that's first and foremost and then second of all there's digital currencies. And whether you want to endorse digital currencies as part of your asset allocation, things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, or whether you're just trust sleepy old trust company, you're going to inherit them. People are going to come in as clients with them in their portfolios. A very high percentage of individuals now own cryptocurrencies. So if you're in the financial services industry, 
you better have an ability to hold digital currency. And there are things like, I guess, dirty wallets and clean wallets. There are offshore money, like offshore money and onshore money. And very quickly now, digital assets are falling under a regulatory environment. I guess it's kind of like if you can't beat them, join them. And so clean wallets are digital assets that are have had kind of a know your customer verification that fall under a regulatory environment like other assets and aren't on the dark web but you know are things that can be taxed and things like that and so they're just kind of becoming mainstream and it's get on board or be left behind. It's almost like the internet, the rise of the internet. It's a whole revolution in the way we track assets. That's probably the best I can do for now. Mm-hmm. Do you well, want to add to that? Well, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is, you know, listeners of the show have heard this too many times, but you know, I became a millionaire a couple of different times in my 20s and lost it all due to speculation. And then and then about the time I was turning into my 30s, I became a real devotee of Warren Buffett and compound interest investing and, and kind of have a soapbox against speculation when people think they're investing, you know, when they, they think they're investing, but they're actually gambling, you know. And so for me, a lot of the cryptocurrencies are tough when they get promoted to somebody who doesn't understand the risks of it you know, it doesn't have an intrinsic value. It's just changing based on human emotion, right? The price. And at the same time, I am such a fan of the the kind of security that becomes available with blockchain. I mean, I, I had a buddy at BP who had made 5 million bucks for the company on a credit default swap. And I didn't know much about derivatives. This is 12, 13 years ago. And he was explaining to me like, what a wild west industry it is like where sometimes back and forth between the financial institutions like you know there'll be 200 million dollars in derivatives that's only tracked on an excel spreadsheet and like somebody will get like an email like 18 days later or three months later hey you guys were 200 million off on that can you send over the money i just looked at this excel sheet again and i think you guys forgot to send that one and they're like oh shoot sorry and like people hush it up because <laughs> Tracking was so bad on a lot of these derivatives. And and there's other financial contracts that like, I think regular people would be shocked (laughs) how insecure some of the tracking is. I don't know if you've ever seen that in the industry, but some of those things that that I understand have happened, the idea of of having a independent ledger to, to track, I mean, even for us, we're ramping up our big real estate investment trust. Like the ability to not have to spend so much on title insurance if if titles were tracked on, on blockchain, you know, things like this, I think are massive efficiencies that only help an economy. I, I don't know if you yeah. feel differently than, than any of that. No, I, I think that blockchain is just absolutely an idea that is is so powerful that is going to revolutionize the financial world in so many different ways and that it has to because it's an independent way to verify things like ownership or quote unquote the truth and 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 that really matters a lot you know we we've gone to these digital sources of 
of truth. And, you know, a, a piece of paper can be altered, copied, counterfeited, but the distributed ledger is very, very difficult to mess with. And I think if we go to a place where at one level of computing power that it can be messed with, then we'll fix that and we'll go to a whole nother level of computing power. It's, it's, it's revolutionary. It's, and it's definitely where the world is headed. And in different places from title insurance to I'm trying to think of all the different possible applications anywhere where you need to know what the what really happened a string of transactions what the real value of something is yeah Um, you know another topic I'm really interested in your thoughts on is wealthy families get focused on a lot by the media and you know I think it's it's a fascination for a lot of people I mean look through history how many of the fairy tales are about kings and princesses? You know, like it's it's an element of endless fascination for, for folks. But I think there is a lot of misconceptions out there about, you know, businesses that want to do business with ultra high net worth families. You've been so successful in that space. What's one of your principles that maybe not everybody realizes when it comes to making your firm magnetic for, for those type of families who have lots of choices to want to choose you? Okay. So, well, where to start? I mean, what came to mind immediately is first and foremost, you know, they are, they are just regular people like you and me, they have, they have comp, but they have complicated lives. So if you can make their, if they can trust you to take care of those issues in their lives, really, really trust you. That's super important. So you need to come in as a trusted advisor already, vetted already. And that's through a center of influence, someone that they already know trusts you. That's how you're going to get in the door. And then from there, you just have to really demonstrate your competence, that you know what you're talking about, you're nice and personable, and you're going to make all of these, you know, headaches go away from them and either keep them from losing their money and help them make money so they can sleep well at night and do all the the great things that they want to do in their life. And you're going to take care of all these other things for them. So they just have to trust you to do that. It's very simple. When you think about how many people claim to be able to do that for them, what do you think makes the difference in them? finally choosing to trust you? Well, again, I think that most people who are wannabes on that side, they, you know, you really have to have the the bona fides. So who is it that they already trust, right? They probably trust their estate attorney, they trust their parents, their maybe somebody that they know from college, but you know, who is it that they that they already have really close relationships with? And so if those people also trust you, somebody they sit on a board with, business partners, you're not going to just come in and make a cold call on someone with a billion dollars or someone with a hundred million dollars. It's not going to, and, and that a lot of people say they're trustworthy, but then you, you can kind of demonstrate it. I mean, I'm, I'm going on a, a pitch later on today and it's with someone that we've known for a really long time. He's a trustee for somebody that we're a client of and he's seen us in operation for maybe 10 years and now he has some additional liquidity himself and he has a very high net worth but he just didn't have so much liquidity and so so that trust didn't come overnight it took 10 years to develop that trust sorry it's not that easy to develop yeah. trust no it's such a good point you know we I would love your advice on this. We're we're working on a new little group at the media company. You know how there's like 
Bloomberg Live or Wall Street Journal Live where they do events, right? Yeah. We're, we're working on one for Greystoke Live for our media company of a family. We haven't exactly figured out what to call it yet, but we're thinking about calling it like a family wealth forum or something like this. And we're working with a couple of billionaire families and a couple of other, you know, high net worth single family offices, the, the principals, but especially so, some of the second gen members of the family. And the first group that they want to do is almost more of a non-financial thing where they want to get together and I, I, I'm trying to organize it where it's for them, by them, like we're essentially facilitating it kind of a thing. And the thing they've been the most interested in so far is getting together with other second gens and talking about the complexities of being in your dad's shadow and how do you not spoil your kids? And, you know, like your other friends who aren't in the same financial position as you often think, well, you're rich, you must not have any problems. So you don't have a lot of, you don't always get a lot of empathy from others because if you're rich, everything must be fine for you, you know? And and trying to navigate some of those complexities. As we grow a group like that, do you have any any advice or, th or thinking about, you know, just being around families like that over your career, what, what you would tell us to do for an event like that? Yeah, and I'm thinking of my wonderful partner, Gail Cohen, who also would have, you know, tremendous advice for you on that. But what I'm thinking about myself is, yeah, of course they have problems. And the of course that the biggest issue is that you don't want to spoil your kids. And I think that as people move on in the first generation, after they get through the, the business of making their money, that immediately the next thing is how do I not spoil my kids? And then that's the first thing for the second generation is how I don't spoil my kids. And it's it's not that easy because it really, well, it, it, it is easy in a way, is that they the kids, it's not what you say, it's what you do. And it's how you live your values. So your kids are going to absorb, you know, if you live a life that you want them to live, they're going to notice. If you don't live absolutely to the edge of your means, they're going to notice. If you, you know, if you, what do you do about brands? Are you super brand conscious or are you, you know, are, are you prudent with your money? You know, how you actually spend your money, how do you treat it in terms of philanthropy? Are you, you know, are you generous to other people? Are you kind to yourself? You know, whatever your family values are, that's what your kids are going to absorb. And then there's always the child who, no matter what you do, is going to spend too much. And those are really <laughs> the challenges. <laughs> and that's why you need a peer group like they're pulling together because a lot of people aren't going to understand. And so I think it's wonderful what you're putting together at the conference because it, you, you, need, you really need support as a parent from people who have similar issues as you do. And it's, it's wonderful to have community. And what I've what I've hesitated on saying is, you know, people always want to bring in experts, the person from this institute or that institute. And I do think that helps in having an agenda. And we can talk offline about who some of those experts might be and, you know, my personal opinion about some versus others. But I certainly wouldn't make it all about that because they have a lot of the expertise right there in their own lives. Well, that it's interesting. That's kind of what, what they've 
said a little bit to me is like that they want to actually like, you know, maybe there's like a, a larger group meeting, but, but that, you know, this would be like kind of an ongoing series, but that you're, you know, the discussions happen in small groups. Cause you know, you're saying like, Hey, listen, I'm, you know, none of us are probably going to get up in front of 200 of our peers and say, here's, here's how I think I'm worried. I'm messing up my teenager. He's like, but if there was like, you know, if it divided up and there was only eight of us around the table and we were all taking a turn, then I think it would be easier for us to be honest. And he's like, you know, I'd love for people to get assigned a case study where they need to make a case study on themselves and then come present it to us and we can discuss about it and then say how it's showing up for us. And so we're, we're, we're exploring some different ideas, but I, I, I would love, let's, let's have another call. I'd love to hear about those suggestions. And it is kind of my attempt here of, you know, can it, can we kind of nail the product market fit right off the bat? by kind of letting them be the ones who invent it or co-invent it with us, you know? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea. A small group, not more than eight, give everybody a chance to speak case study, speak into it, because I think they really actually are the geniuses that they'll they'll be able to help each other, I think, way better than the so-called expert. <laughs> yeah. You know, another another question I have is there are so many f- folks who they see the potential of being in the financial services industry and 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 the potential large rewards that are possible and they're ambitious and they've got degrees from great universities or they're they're lifelong self-learners things like this and yet so few of them have have accomplished what you've accomplished what do you think you've done different what what do you attribute some of the success to mm, listening and humility i think being able to take take some feedback but really be able to take in other people's point of view that's super important and the biggest inflection point i think is when you want to go from being a manager to that next level of manager of managers in your career because that's when you have to learn how to delegate to other people who are better than you and so you have to actually be humble about what you're not good at so that you can stop doing those things and give them to other people and help develop them in their career so that you can keep good people around you and under you who want to work with you. So this is interesting. I, I just did an interview this morning with a Greek guy who is over at Cambridge and they've invented some new ways that looks like they're going to be able to save liver transplants that, you know, a, a donated liver from somebody who's passed away that that wasn't good enough and had to go in the trash, you know? And they've come up with new ways to build essentially mini organs, these these injections they're doing. They're possibly, it looks like their breakthrough is gonna make it so like a lot of children may never need to get the transplant in the first place because of what they're injecting and all this stuff. Well, he's gone from being a doctor and a researcher to an entrepreneur building a business out of this. And we had this discussion this morning. You know, in medicine, there's so many people who they got ahead by being an individual contributor. You know, they got their degree. They're they're the ones who have won so often playing an individual sport. And now he's got to get a bunch of these folks together and play a team sport of, of doing the startup together. So I'm, I'm interested from your point of view, you know, there's so many portfolio managers or people who, you know, they got their fancy degree. They got their bonus when they were at Goldman. And yes, they work together with others, but a lot of times there can be reinforcement of your success yourself. And yet at higher levels of businesses, if there isn't good teamwork, you know, that, that's, uh, you're, you're unlikely to have strong growth, at least in my observation. So my question for you is, 
in both selection and cultivation of leaders who may have been, you know, reinforced this idea of individualism, helping select the ones that are more team oriented and helping to further foster that. Do you have any thoughts on that in, in finance? Yeah, that, that is um, absolutely critical what you're talking about, because you have to have that individual success to get to a certain point. And I think it's this transition to, you're just not going to get any further until, unless you can be uh, part of a great team. You're just, you know, you need a bigger organization to have a bigger impact. I mean, that's one reason why I sold my company to a bigger company to be part of a bigger company to have a bigger impact. And <laughs> you have to be a team player to do that. So what are the, the qualities? I think people have to be open-minded. They have to have give and take. Being part of a team means that you have to pass the ball. You can't always be the one carrying the ball. You have to recognize that other people have talent too, and that you are better together. And again, understanding, having a little bit of self-awareness. And this is where maybe my whole world that I don't know if we've ever talked about, about meditation and contemplation and yoga and, you know, actually being able to sit still long enough to see how the world really is, not the way you want it to be. And so that means noticing, hey, you know, actually, I'm really good at this. I should do this. I'm really not as good at that. He should do that. And then you can build a team, but you have to be able to deal with reality. I think we need to just do a whole series and have you back on the show. <laughs> we'll have to do a whole show about that one. Listen, I, I want to be respectful of your time here. Obviously, I hope people go to bens.org and check that out. Go to fiduciarytrust.com, learn about you there. Where are the other best places for people to go? Connect with you on LinkedIn or what's where, if, if other oh, yeah. people want to learn more? Totally connect with me on LinkedIn. That would be wonderful. I would love to have people go look at keepkidssafeonline.org. They can learn more about what we're doing on Facebook with that. Yeah. One of the organizations I'm on the board of is Mind and Life. So they can learn more about all that contemplative science stuff. And did you say fiduciary trust? Of course, fiduciary trust international. But no, thanks for all those plugs and love to talk with you again more about Ben's. There's so much more we could say there. And we had so much fun. You know, we didn't even get into visiting FBI headquarters and oh my gosh, special <laughs> ops. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to have time. to have you back. We're going to have to do that. <laughs> okay. All right, Jess, really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so very much. You bet.